<clears throat> well, tonight we get uh, the other half of last week. We saw, we've seen for many weeks now this, this suffering theme. And finally it's going to come to a head. And we'll see what is really the climax of the Joseph story in chapter 41. So we'll go through the whole chapter tonight. That's verses 1 to 57. It's a long chapter. So we'll probably kind of go at a clip. <clears throat> but I want to examine some things in this passage um, that speak to the other end of what I talked about last week, about suffering. And it's just as important to recognize this end. And I, I'm probably speaking more to myself than even you, because the truth is most people like the glory part of, of the end of suffering, the, the, the exalting that comes with it. I tend to hang around in the suffering part, and I need to be reminded that there's a purpose. And this is week is a good reminder for me. <clears throat> so this week is titled Exalted to Glory, Exalted to Glory. And so we're going to see in this chapter, remember where we left off last week, Joseph, he's in prison and he's been forgotten by man, but not by God, not by God, but by man he's been forgotten and he's languished in that prison. And the first verse is going to tell us for how long. Verse one of chapter 41. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. So it's possible two full years. This is back to Pharaoh's birthday again. This is a, a, a special occasion, right? If it's been two full years to the day, then this could be that special occasion again. And so Pharaoh has a dream, and he was standing by the Nile River. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile that were ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. And then Pharaoh awoke. Now remember, this is all imagery that's very familiar. One thing to recognize, we're going to see some interpretation of this dream. But as far as the elements of the dream... They all make sense. They're elements that would make sense to Pharaoh. He's by the river that he, he knows, like the back of his hand. It's his river, the Nile, the, the river that, that makes the land of Egypt, the, the great wealth that it has, is all because of the Nile River. And so he's by the Nile and he sees cows, which is a very important element of what Egypt did, right? This agricultural reality, this farming reality. And so cows are very significant. But it seems like he just goes back to sleep. He has this dream. Maybe he's not too troubled by it, at least yet. But he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Okay, <clears throat> again, the elements are familiar. This one may be more disturbing with the ears of corn eating something, which is kind of odd. But again, this is stuff you'd understand as agriculture. But what's unique is he obviously recognizes the elements 
relating to one another. He sees the sevens. He sees this repetition of numbers. He sees this kind of decrepit thing eating the, a, a full, a, a, a well-balanced thing. And so he recognizes that the two dreams are related in some sense. And he's going to say it later. We'll see it clearly. Whatever the case, these two dreams back to back in one night, he wakes up and he's disturbed. He's greatly troubled. His spirit was troubled, so he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt, all the wise men, all the diviners, all the people who might have some wisdom and insight. That's what he's looking for. He needs wisdom and insight into his dream. And so he calls them all up, all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. All of a sudden, two years later, the chief cupbearer has a memory all of a sudden. Ah, he spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own sins, my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us, dreamed according to the interpretation of his dream. Now a Hebrew youth was there with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him. And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him, the chief baker. So Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. So two years, all of a sudden, the chief cupbearer remembers, and, and it's kind of alluded to that he says, you know, I remember my sins. Who's the person he primarily sinned against? Well, Joseph, by forgetting him, the promise that he made. But he also might be making reference to the fact that the reason he was put in prison in the first place, first place was offending the Pharaoh. But you have this memory all of a sudden come, and he tells the Pharaoh all about this Hebrew youth the dream interpreter, as his brothers called him, the dreamer. And not only does he have dreams, but he interprets dreams. And so they bring him out of the dungeon, and they've got to clean him up. If you're going to go before the king, you've got to be presentable, right? So they shave him, and they give him a change of clothes, and they bring him out. And so Pharaoh... Remember, by the way, before we move on, this is a precarious moment for Joseph. Pharaoh summoned him. Remember, he's just a slave in prison, even less than a slave. He's an imprisoned slave now. He's being called by the king of Egypt. Now, if he goes before him and does something that he doesn't like, that Pharaoh doesn't like, if he doesn't give the right interpretation, it's much more likely for things to go bad for Joseph than it would be for the wise men or the magicians that have a proven track record at least to, to Pharaoh, of, of being worthwhile, of offering something of value. Joseph's in a precarious situation. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me 
God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He'll explain it to you. Again, Joseph, he says, the Lord is the one who interprets dreams. Tell it to me, but it's not under my own power that I'm able to do this. It's, it's my God who gives me the interpretation. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, in my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be even detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. Now, in Pharaoh's interpretation, different than the narration of the dream, we see that Pharaoh's really struck by these ugly cows. This, the, the seven ugly cows seem to be the focus of the dream, at least in Pharaoh's understanding. These seven great cows, they don't seem to, to even each other out. It's, it's, his focus is on these ugly cows. His focus is on the threat of them. They're foreboding to him for some reason. It, it's clear his, he's fixated on them. He talks more about them than any other element of the dream. He's been almost paralyzed by, by this idea of what they could be. He relates a second dream. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears, withered, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So he's related both the dreams. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. Now, if you understand Joseph's interpretation, it makes sense the foreboding feeling that Pharaoh had related to the gaunt cows, the ugly cows. There, there's something wicked this way comes, right? It's, it's, there is something of a bad omen in his mind when he sees these. And of course, Joseph's interpretation says exactly that. This, this famine is great. He's going to go on and he's going to say this. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. The abundance will be literally unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. The, the ugly cows, the ugly corn, the, the, they're so bad what is coming, they're going to forget that they had seven years of plenty. What's coming is going to be awful. Joseph says, now as for the repeating of the dream, why did you have it twice? 
As the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Now, stop there for a moment. This is the next time we've seen Joseph interpret pairs of dreams. So we saw him do it with the the chief cupbearer and the baker, and now we're seeing it here. He does it with Pharaoh. What is left outstanding in our story? We're still waiting on two dreams. And those dreams are Joseph's dreams. Now, what does he say here? The repeating of the dream, the repeating of the dream is showing that God is determined in the matter. It will happen. And he's going to bring it about quickly. What were Joseph's two dreams? Joseph's two dreams were, first, his sheaf of of wheat, it rose up amongst the other sheaves of the brothers. And all the other sheaves bowed down to Joseph's sheaf. That was the first dream. What was the second? My star rose up amongst the stars, and all the other stars and the sun and the moon bowed down to my star. And everyone's like, Joseph, you're so arrogant. Even Jacob rebukes him. How dare you? Would your mother and I really bow down to you? So we've seen a pair of dreams that have not yet been answered. What's interesting to me, this is just an interesting question, He says God's going to quickly bring it about. I guess it's just a reminder that God's timing is not always our timing because it seems like it's been a long time for Joseph's to be brought quickly about. Because we're going to see that Joseph is now 30. When we started this tale, Joseph was 17. It's been 13 years of him being enslaved and almost 20 years since he had those dreams. Maybe it's just the difference between our timing and God's timing. But this is going to happen quickly. This event is. But it seems like Joseph's dreams, man, they're they're taking a while. But Joseph's not done. Joseph is a wise man. So he, he interprets the dreams, but he doesn't stop there. He says, here's my counsel. All right, we've understood the interpretation of the dreams. What should we do about them? It says, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise. Those are the key traits for a leader, by the way, in the Old Testament. Discerning and wise, intelligent and wise. And set that man over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land of the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. Okay, now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. 
So Joseph comes up out of the prison. He's shaved. He's cleaned. He's given a new set of clothes, and he stands before Pharaoh. He interprets his dreams and then gives him the plan to deal with it. I mean, think about the immediate change in circumstance that's happening here from literally the lowest of the low. He is a foreign-born, imprisoned slave. I mean, how much lower could you go? He's non-Egyptian, imprisoned, and a slave. But Pharaoh, just a chance encounter. Obviously, we know it's not chance. The story almost paints it like, oh, what are the the odds of this happening? It's just, just, what are the odds of Joseph ending up here? Well, we know that the Lord's been at work. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we, could we find a man like this? Is there anyone else we could go to in whom there is the spirit of God, a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and he put a gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him Asenat, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Functionally, Joseph has just become what they call the vizier. This is the, the man who is functionally the prime minister of the country. They may not be the royal head, but they run the country. Right? This is the person in charge of of everything. That's what Pharaoh's saying. Pharaoh's saying, you will literally be in charge of everything. Nothing will happen without your say-so. Only because of the throne am I greater than you. But outside of that, there will be nothing outside your purview. You will be in command. Now think about the quickness of what we just read. I mean, that's a whirlwind. Joseph probably hasn't even had time to consider what just happened to him. This is a monumental turnaround in his status. And remember what I just said to you, where Joseph was previously. The Pharaoh just made a foreign-born, imprisoned slave vizier over the entire country of Egypt. The entire kingdom. The empire of Egypt. That's an exaltation. That's a reward. 
That's a payment for all his suffering. And see, we forget that sometimes. That's important. Well, I'll, I'll hold off. Let me finish the text, then we'll come back. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Then Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. The abundance of these seven years, beyond measure. Joseph, a wise leader, stores it all up. But this is important. It's a side note. It kind of seems like an aside, but it's important for many reasons. And, it, and particularly, I think one's more personal and one's more covenantal. The covenantal reason is because what have been the three key important things? In Genesis, it's been a land. We know Joseph's out of the land. He's in Egypt. It's been a seed. And this is where it's key. The line of Joseph is going to go on because he's about to have children. And I've, I've talked to you about this. I talked to you about this in Genesis. I talked to you during the Leah and Rachel uh, debacle, I don't know what else to call it, the fight between sisters, the war between them, about the importance of names and how significant it is as they name their children. Joseph is going to do the exact same thing with his boys. It's very powerful. Right Now, before the year of famine, this is still in the years of plenty, things are going great for Joseph. He's vizier. He's, he is over the country. And in this time, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Azanat, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. Actually, in Hebrew, I think it's Manasseh. <clears throat> for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble. You almost can hear him choking up <laughs> at all my father's house. Manashe means to forget. I love that name because I just don't think there's any doubt. I talked last week about how awful it is that humans forget, and it's true. We are a forgetful people. We're called to remember by the Lord. Remember his ways. Remember who he is. And we know the Lord remembers. He remembered Noah. He remembered Rachel. He clearly remembers Joseph, even though the text doesn't use that word specifically. He remembers Joseph. The other side of that is that sometimes it's a blessing that humans forget. Sometimes the rawness of pain that we can feel, it's a blessing to forget. The depth of 
and hurt and pain of experiences we can go through, sometimes it's a blessing to be able to forget. And he is here extolling the Lord because his troubles have been forgotten. The days of his imprisonment, the days of his slavery, and the days in which his brothers said, let's sell him, let's kill him. Let's be rid of the dreamer. All of those awful things that I'm sure just sat in Joseph's heart. He says, I've forgotten all my troubles. My life is good. And I forgot. See, Joseph, Joseph here, he, he's still not yet convinced that there will ever be reconciliation with his family. I've forgotten my father's house. We know. We know God's not done. But Joseph, I'm sure Joseph is in the space. He's like, the Lord has just blessed me beyond compare. What more could I ask? I forgot my father's house. There's Joseph's pain name. And I think it's really significant and beautiful that that comes first. That's his firstborn. His firstborn is the name of pain, the name of his suffering. And then he named the second, Ephraim. For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim means fruitful in Hebrew. He made me fruitful. Not only did I forget But now, even beyond forgetting, I am fruitful. I have borne fruit in a land where I was nothing. In a land where I was literally the lowest of the low, the Lord made me fruitful. Ephraim. He has a name of his suffering and a name of his blessing. It's powerful. When I say names are significant, this is the kind of language I'm talking about. This is Joseph giving name to what his life has been, to what he has experienced in life. That's the power of names. So, when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, Then there was a famine in all the lands. This extended well beyond Egypt. But in all the land of Egypt, there was still bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. And when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up all the storehouses and he sold to the Egyptians in a famine. It was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe, not just in Egypt, but in all the earth. Now remember, we've just read, I've forgotten all my trouble 
and all my father's household. This is, literarily, this is foreshadowing, isn't it? All the earth, all the earth came to Egypt because the famine was severe in all the earth. What's the narrator trying to remind us of? Joseph's family is still out there. They're in the land of Canaan still. This is going to affect them. If all the earth is coming to Egypt, Joseph's brothers are going to have to come to Egypt. There's more to this story. We're not done yet. It could just be a story where Joseph is made great, and then that's the end. All right, good story. No, there's more to be done. God's not done yet. With this people, with this family, he's not done. So all the earth is coming to Egypt, and we should be thinking, Joseph's family is going to have to do something to survive. Could it be? Could it be in our wildest dreams that this family is going to be brought back together? A family that was that hateful, that spiteful, that destructive towards itself? Could it be that God's going to bring them back together? And of course, the other element of Genesis that's so significant, as we talked about, a land, Joseph's not in the land, a seed, he's now had two sons. And the last element is a blessing. A land, a seed, a blessing. Joseph has now been put in a position to bless what the, what the text says is the whole earth. That's the language that, that the scriptures use. Remember the promise to Abraham. You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Joseph is going to start fulfilling that promise. Joseph himself was put in a position to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. To not just save Egypt, not even just save his own family, but to all the peoples who would come and get food and be saved from this famine. Joseph is the one. Joseph is the one who did that. God's leading, God's direction, God's plan, and Joseph is the one who, who acted it out, who, who accomplished that plan of God. That's significant, covenantally, because Joseph is starting to fulfill some of the promises. Not fully, we know the fullness didn't come until, until Jesus. But he's starting to fulfill those, those promises in Joseph. Okay, on a personal level, as it relates to Joseph, I think it's imperative that we stop for a moment and think about what God did. Because we really haven't seen the full reflection. The, the full reflection of what God did in the text's own words, doesn't happen until Genesis 50. So we're a ways out still. We're like two months out from that. But it is impossible after reading what Joseph just went through to sit and reflect for a minute on the glory that he was lifted to. And I'll admit, I said this up front, I'll come back to where I was earlier, which is to say this, that's... That part of the story, just on a personal level, for whatever reason, that's harder for me to sit with in some ways. 
I, I've got to remember that. And maybe that's not the case for you, but I told you last week, it's, it's very easy for me to understand the suffering part. It's very easy for me to sit in that and make sense of that. And I think about that a lot. That's just my personality. But what I've often come to see in myself at just different seasons in my life is the reality that I forget that, that suffering is not an end unto itself. We're not just called to be ascetic. We're not called to just be the kind of people like, we just live in pain and that's the godly thing to do and that's why we do it and we just perpetually live in misery and that's, that's godly somehow. But sometimes I, I get that blinder on that inherently it's a good thing. But that's not what's going on. There's a purpose. There's a reason and, and clearly, Scripture doesn't always give us that reason. I mean, look at Job. That's the point. The reason's a mystery. It's, it's, non, it's, it's, uncomprehend, it's incomprehensible to us. We, we can't grasp the fullness of what God is at work doing. But sometimes we have to remember that the other side of the suffering, there's glory. There's a glory to be had. There's an exaltation to be had in this life. Not always. Not for everyone. But many times. And the reason I think that's so important is because God actually says that's a necessity. Remember Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.6, it says this. It says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Right? It's impossible to please him, to be well-pleasing to him. And it says that not only must you believe that he is, which is where most people stop, you must believe that he exists. Okay, that's true. You've got to believe God exists to have faith. The verse doesn't stop there. It says, and you must believe he is one who rewards those who seek him. I think we've gotten a backwards mentality in which we think that ever thinking about the reward is almost like a sin. It's almost like, well, I'm just being greedy or something. Like, I, I've just got this greedy impulse. I just can't wait for the reward. As if that's all it's about. Firstly, the rewards are great and varied. I think we recognize that. And of supreme value is, is not just the seeking, it's the fact that when you seek him, you can find him. You'll actually find the God of the universe if you seek him. But it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that it's required, if, if you have faith, it is required that you believe that God rewards those who seek him. That's part of faith. And we forget that. I forget that. I, I, don't, I don't even want to speak for anyone else. I speak for myself. I forget that. Because sometimes I'm so consumed with the now and the here and the suffering and the experience. We forget that if there's no reward, we've missed faith. We believe in a God who wants to do good to his people. In fact, we believe in a God who's committed to doing good to his people. At his own loss. That's the essence of Jesus. What cost Jesus everything was for our reward, was for our gain. 
we received out of his wounds. I mean, all that language throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament. Right? We receive from what Christ did. And what Christ did was, was have shame and scorn and derision just heaped on him so that we could receive. And when we sit in the suffering too long, sometimes, at least for me, it, became, it can become an end unto itself. It's just good to be in that state, but... Joseph shows something different. Now, the state can last a lot longer than we want and we expect. Joseph is like this for 13 years of miserable, imprisoned existence. But God has something great in store. And Joseph, in this life, is exalted in glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Kavod is... There's different forms in Hebrew of, of, of ways to use words, but the normal form of kavod, it's used when it's used normally, is actually just the concept of heaviness. If something's heavy, it's kavod. It's, it's weighty. When you take that word and put it in a, in a different form, it's still kavod, but it's pronounced differently. It's the word of glory. The concept of glory is the concept of weightiness. This is heavy. It's like the way we use, man, can you, can you grasp the gravity of the situation? Can you grasp the, the weightiness of it? When we talk about God as glorious, that's what we're talking about. He is weighty. He is heavy. That this material, the, the content of who God is, it has a gravity that is, is un, it's just a total mystery to us. We cannot comprehend the power and weight of who God is. He's kavod. Sometimes, like it's Joseph, he, Joseph is, is given a weighty position. He has much responsibility on his shoulder. He is given this glory in the position he's put in after his suffering, as a, I believe as a reward for his faithful suffering. And I think it's significant. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, one that I've clung to in different seasons of my life, one that I've, I've, I've used to look at and said, you know what, uh, I've been offered this promotion, I don't know if it's right. One that I've looked at and, and remind you, could remind you in a situation like Joseph and his suffering, where he has the option of, of Potiphar's wife. He's like, you know what, I've suffered enough, why not take it? May I deserve it after all I've suffered. He, the thing that can prevent you from all of that stuff is found in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I love this verse. I, I, like I said, I've clung to this verse because it's so powerful. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then this verse. Therefore... Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he will exalt you at the proper time. At the proper time. And cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. 
That's the story of Joseph. See, we forget that the humbling happens because at some point God's going to exalt us. And I will be the first to admit that for some of us, that may not happen in this life. I'm not going to say that this just, it's across the board. Everyone gets that experience in this life. We don't. But I think it's also unfair to say that no one gets it. Joseph's proof to the other end. Suffering righteously. Suffering as a godly person. Suffering in the right way. The righteous sufferer, like we talked about last week, can lead to God exalting you at the proper time. And that story is is woven throughout Scripture. It's the story of Esther. Remember what, what her uncle says to her? Maybe you were born for such a time as this. At the proper time, exalted. It's the story of Joseph. And Joseph can say what at the end of chapter 50? I know, spoiler alert, chapter 50. But he can say what? He can say this. What you intended for evil, my brothers, God intended for good. Exalted at the proper time. And Jesus, his story looks mysterious to us. But we went through John. We went through the whole book of John. And over and over and over again, what did John tell us about the cross? That the cross was not just his suffering. He was exalted. It was his enthronement. That the cross itself, as mysterious and as as mystical as that sounds to us, as out there as that can sound to us, that the actual act of Jesus just lifted up on the cross, that was actually his enthronement as king. He was exalted in the cross. In the world, everyone looked and saw nothing but shame and scorn and derision. Everything looking at this man Looks like it's going wrong. How could this be the Messiah? How could this be the king? Look at him. He's on a cross. Deuteronomy told us. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. This man is accursed of God. And when all eyes looked and saw this man is condemned. In reality, exalted at the proper time. Jesus, exalted at the proper time. Why? Because he'd humbled himself under God's mighty hand. Peter himself, the one who wrote that verse under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what, what's Peter's life look like? Denied Christ. Just awful. Not many things I can think of that you could do worse than denying Jesus to his face. Denied Jesus to his face. He was humbled. He was, he was more than humble. He was humiliated. And what did Jesus do? John 21. Do you love my sheep, Peter? I just picture him. He can't even look at Jesus. You know that I do, Lord. You know that I do. 
Feed my sheep, Peter. Do you truly love these? Do you truly love me more than these, Peter? You know that I do, Lord. Tend my lambs, Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Maybe he finally looks up. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Humbled under the mighty hand of God. And when the time came again, this is not in scripture, but this is tradition. And the tradition, I think, is pretty valid. Some of these early things were passed along because they were so significant. This is tradition. But when the time came again, Peter's time to die for Jesus. The first time, just a blowout. Everything wrong. Denies him three times, just like Jesus predicted. Runs away. Coward. Second time. Humbled under God's mighty hand. Rock of the church. Has lived as, as functional leader of the entire church for his life up to that moment. And the time comes again. He gets the chance number two. You ready to die for Jesus, Peter? I love this. Peter says, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. Hang me upside down. I don't deserve to die like him. That's powerful. Turn me upside down. I could not... I'm not worthy to untie his shoestrings. Don't hang me in the same way as Jesus. I don't deserve it. So they crucify him inverted upside down on the cross. Peter exalted at the proper time. We've got to remember We've got to remember that the suffering is not the end. It's not the goal. There's another side to this. That one day we can hope, we can trust, like 1 Peter 5 says, we can trust. That if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, the whole context of 1 Peter 5, by the way, is about this, that suffering. The whole book talks about suffering in the New Testament, suffering righteously. 1 Peter 5 says, if you're willing to humble yourself, you can trust that God will exalt you at the right time. And like I said, that verse in my own life, I've clung to that verse. I've, I've watched it and I've used it. I've used it as a litmus test. I've looked at things. I've had promotions come. I've had different opportunities where I've looked at it and said, Lord, is this me trying to exalt myself? Or is this the proper time? There have been many times, many times, I've come to the conclusion, if I did this, if I took this, if I, I followed this path, that's me exalting myself. Yeah, I'd look great. I'd look great. Everyone would clap and applaud, and oh, good job, Jeremy. And just be man's praise. Or I've received my reward in full. The applause of men. And I've turned away from those opportunities, waiting for God's exalting at the proper time. It's been foundational for me. 
but I always have trusted that when the proper time came, God would do it. So remember, remember, again, we talked about it last week. Maybe you're suffering now, maybe not. The day will come. And I'm sure many days for many of you have come (laughs) already and gone. But for the next season that comes like that, remember, remember, humble yourself under God's mighty hand and wait for the exaltation that's coming because the Lord will not leave you humiliated. He will not leave you humiliated because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He wants to lift up the humble. He wants to exalt them. Pattern your heart after that. Like Aaron's saying tonight, shape your heart. Shape your heart in the image of Jesus, the one who was willing to humble himself. Humble himself to the point of death. Philippians. Not only did he take on the form of a servant, but he humbled himself to the point of death. Take on that Jesus-shaped life, the Jesus-shaped heart. Suffering will end. Exaltation will come. It's the goal we're striving towards. And God rewards those who seek him. And one day, one day we'll just be left with that. The suffering, the tears, the pain, it will all have passed away. All that will remain is the glory of the Lord and the glory he graciously bestows to us. That's what we'll be left with. Godspeed that day. Tyler, 